This is Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today is my response episode to Star Trek Discovery's 12th episode of its fourth season, titled Species 10C. I'm not kidding when I say that this was one of my favorite Discovery episodes of all time. And before I explain why, make sure you've watched this episode yourself, because major spoilers are about to arrive at warp speed. As always, we have three short segments, Think, Feel, and Question. Think. In this episode, we finally meet the creators of the DMA, Species 10C. The primary plot of this episode follows the Discovery crew's efforts to communicate with this truly alien species. Last week, we found out that the 10C convey emotions with large hydrocarbons, which can act sort of like pheromones. This week, we find out that these hydrocarbons also form the basis for a language that can be deciphered if the hydrocarbons are read in a certain order, an order that is conveyed through light pulses emitted by the 10C. Once the foundation of the language elements are established, the Discovery crew proceeds to construct a basic logical framework through math. As Dr. Harai, the resident astrolinguist, explains... Three of hydrocarbon A, one B, then one A. Four A's, one B, three A's. Here we have four A's, one B, two A's. That's the pattern. The first group of A's is always larger than the next, indicating that the B compound in the middle means greater than. Now there are other patterns as well. From here, we can build all sorts of communication, if-then statements, complex logic. From there, it was possible for the 10C to eventually convey this message to the crew. 178 plus the volume of a gravitational lens equals curiosity. Burnham quickly identifies that the number 178 means isolinium because the atomic number of isolinium, or the number of protons in an atom of isolinium, is 178. Saru then realizes that the lens shape corresponds to the DMA. So the whole thing was a question that read, why did you put an isolytic weapon in the DMA? You know, I thought that this episode was truly amazing for showing us the thrill and the terror of making first contact with something that isn't just another bipedal humanoid with a funny forehead, with a species whose language isn't easily converted to Federation standard by the Universal Translator. In all likelihood, first contact with species 10C is way more representative of what real-life first contacts with alien intelligences might look like. And I do believe that math and chemistry could play important roles in bridging these unimaginable divides. 
Math is obvious because it contains that all-important logical framework. Chemistry, on the other hand, is almost a language in and of itself, with nouns, the elements, which can be universally described by numbers, as isolinium was, as well as verbs, bonding, dissolving, reacting, decaying, and adjectives, ground state, excited state, positively or negatively charged. Any species who has discovered the atomic structure and the basic laws of chemistry should recognize these principles. I might even go so far as to conjecture that their periodic tables might look very similar to ours. So let's get back to this first conversation between the Federation and Species 10C. In response to the 10C's question, our heroes decide to send back the message DMA plus us equals terror. They have the equation for the DMA's shape. They have a terror hydrocarbon identified. The only question is how to convey the concept of us. The number four. Maybe there are four of us. Or six. The atomic number of carbon, we are carbon-based. I fear that such numbers could hold other significance for the density. It is easy for misunderstanding to occur between different cultures when one lacks context. But what President Arena said, using our own biology, the air, the air, they've created an artificial atmosphere based on the exact ratio of gases we need to breathe. 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.93% argon, 0.04% carbon dioxide. They will recognize that as us. DMA plus us equals terror. I will code and send it. Captain Burnham's insight that they could send the composition of air to denote us? was genius. I couldn't have done it better myself. Air equals us. That resonates. That truly resonates with me. You know, on this podcast, I spend a lot of time interviewing other people about their research, and sometimes I neglect to share my own little corner of science here on Strange New Worlds. But I study atmospheric chemistry the molecules that constitute planets' atmospheres, and how they might contribute to the formation and maintenance of life, and how they can reflect the presence of life on a planet as well. On worlds without any life, the atmospheric composition is mainly controlled by geology, volcanic eruptions, for instance, or buffering by surface reservoirs like ice caps and by the way that those gases interact with sunlight to form new molecules. But planets with life have extra biological fluxes that over eons can completely alter a planet's sheath of gas. Take Earth's atmosphere, for instance. Our atmosphere is the way it is only because of life. The 21% oxygen in our atmosphere, the oxygen that we need to consume to stay alive, is the result of 
oxygenic photosynthesis, a brilliant trick that life invented some two and a half billion years ago or so. This metabolism harvests the energy of the sun to split apart water and release O2 as a waste product. We owe our oxygen to these pioneering cyanobacteria and their evolutionary descendants, who still swim the oceans as free-living microbes to this day, and who can also be found as endosymbionts in every plant you've ever seen. Now, most people know that we depend on the life around us for the oxygen that we breathe. But this is also true of other chemicals in our atmosphere, including nitrogen. And remember, nitrogen is the dominant constituent of our air at 78%. Nitrogen gas, N2, has a strong triple bond between two nitrogen atoms. This bond can be broken through energetic processes like lightning and radiation from space. But life has also invented ways of pulling it out of the atmosphere. Special microbes with iron, molybdenum, or vanadium enzymes can catalyze N2's conversion into more useful compounds, like ammonia. Once in the form of ammonia, this nitrogen will cycle through the biosphere, becoming parts of our DNA and proteins. Nitrogen gas is also re-injected into our atmosphere by another biological metabolism called denitrification, which uses nitrate as an energy source, creating N2 as a waste product. So nitrogen, too, is regulated by life. There are also biological cycles relating to carbon dioxide and methane, and life trades sulfur-bearing gases with our atmosphere too. And thanks to our technology, we are also putting chlorinated and fluorinated compounds into the air. So our atmosphere is inextricably us. Not just humanity, but an expression of all of life on Earth, right now and through deep time. For four billion years, our atmosphere has co-evolved with our biosphere. As life has breathed in the atmosphere, the atmosphere has also breathed in us. One classic approach to identifying the signs of life on a planet is to look at the thermodynamic disequilibrium in a planet's atmosphere. Thermodynamic disequilibrium is just a measure of the energy the Gibbs-free energy, for the physically precise. And so this approach asks how much has life supercharged our atmosphere with mixes of molecules that kinda shouldn't be there otherwise. At the same time, it is these out-of-equilibrium chemicals that power much of life today, especially complex life, like humans. With my colleagues at the Carnegie Institution for Science, we're asking how might life have impacted the network structure of our atmosphere? Just like how life has reorganized plain old aqueous chemistry to form its biochemical pathways at the cellular level, has life constructed new chemical order in our atmosphere as a whole? 
There is no doubt that our atmosphere has shaped the evolution of life and has been shaped by life in return. In fact, one might say that at the planetary scale, there is no distinction. The atmosphere isn't just a static backdrop against which biology can do its dance. It is an active partner in the living system, a reservoir of life-giving molecules that touches and connects all of us, a beautiful web of fluxes and reactions that, by virtue of being the outermost and most observable part of our planet from space, might just signal to the cosmos, this is us, here we are, we exist. In Star Trek, there are numerous planets that seem to have developed in roughly the same way. Vulcan, Kaminar, Cardassia, Bajor. Despite their unique geologies and climates, in the grand scheme of things, they're all roughly Earth-like planets. And they all have biology that has produced breathable, nitrogen-oxygen-rich atmospheres. In the Star Trek universe, it's almost like this atmospheric state is an attractor for a living system. Attractor being dynamical systems speak for something that Earth-like worlds eventually, but reliably, converge to. Now, in real life, it's way too early to know if such conditions are actually an attractor. We just don't have enough information about other planets yet. But we can't rule it out as a possibility. So Burnham's choice of the chemical composition of air to denote us was a brilliant choice. It was at once specific enough to be identifying and inclusive enough to represent not just life on Earth, but the biospheres of all of those present. Tarina, Rillick, and Saru. This choice was scientifically and poetically perfect. Feel. I feel like everything is just slipping through my fingers. I have also struggled when I feel a lack of control. Mm. Yet, it is something with which we must make peace. Strangely enough, Mr. Tarka showed me a technique that has proven helpful, though unorthodox. What is it? Well, simply put, yelling. When I was in high school, I was a yerd, a yearbook nerd. I also played trumpet and joined the jazz band. I was part of student government, I played soccer, and I frequented the anime club and the Magic the Gathering tables. But of all the clubs I joined in high school, there's one that I don't often tell people about. It's the Cathartic Screaming Club. <laughs> Seriously. My high school was, still is, a tough place. I grew up in Silicon Valley, where it was common to go trick-or-treating at Steve Jobs' house or grab a meal with your buddies at one of Mark Zuckerberg's favorite restaurants. In class, 
chances were you were sitting next to an offspring of an Adobe executive or an engineer at NASA Ames. It was a supremely privileged environment, to be sure, but it was also a world of relentless, unabating expectations. My high school did what it could to relieve the pressure inherent to a high-strung environment. There were no school rankings, thank goodness. And I'm also eternally grateful to my parents for respecting my limits and telling me that it's better to actually learn in a lower-level class than being constantly overwhelmed in a more advanced one. But there was one other factor that helped me out. It was a club created by my friend Heather, where we would go out to the amphitheater during lunch and just scream. So watching Captains Burnham and Saru form their own little cathartic screaming club on this week's Star Trek Discovery episode made me choke up a bit. You know, sometimes all you need in times of great stress is a trusted friend, some empty space, and a lungful of air. I think I needed that. <laughs> Apparently, Grudge did not need that. <laughs> there is no one I would rather go into this with. It is an honor to be at your side today and always. Question. Okay, in case it wasn't clear, I loved this episode of Star Trek Discovery. I love the idea of the 10C. I love the depiction of First Contact. Kudos to everyone on the production team for dreaming up this story. Species 10C might rank among my top First Contacts in Star Trek ever. Some other brilliant depictions I can think of include TNG's Darmok, where Captain Picard has to learn to communicate with a Tamarian whose language is based on cultural metaphors, and also DS9's The Emissary, where Captain Sisko has to explain the linearity of time to the prophets. In all of these examples, Darmok, The Emissary, Species 10C, it's really about trying to convey a simple idea that one has always taken for granted to someone else who has a completely different way of interpreting the universe. So my question this week is, what's your favorite first contact in Star Trek? And where does Species 10C rank? I really want to know your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and you can meet me physically in April at Star Trek Mission Chicago. That's all for this week on Strange New Worlds. Until next time, see you out there.